As Nicole started us off last week, she kickstarted us. She said that Advent and Christmas, they're kind of a homecoming. People travel back home. They want to be with loved ones. Advent is the idea of coming, and it's the idea of being together. And it's the idea of not only are we looking back to when Jesus came the first time, we're looking forward to when Jesus comes the second time. And there's a reason that this is the first part of the church year. There's a reason that we start here. Because everything that we do happens to dwell around Christ coming to this place. Christ coming to our lives and meeting us in the messiness. And God found a new home among us in the flesh and blood of Jesus Christ. And God will find home again in the second coming of Christ as we await that return. And sometimes these dwelling places that we're in can take us by surprise. The places that Jesus comes to in our lives. Last week, Nicole talked about the time that Jesus comes as an unexpected place. The unexpectedness of his arrival. The unexpectedness of a manger, of an animal shelter, of a cave. Harboring our Savior. And sometimes these dwelling places can be where we experience comfort and joy, and it can be where we experience pain and suffering. God seems to break into our lives at the most inconvenient and most unexpected times. He is the master of the house. It's all about him and what he is preparing for us. And so if last week was about unexpected places, this week is about the wilderness places that we live in. Now, I don't normally preach from Isaiah. So this is going to be a fun trip for all of us. Now, and I also don't think that we listen to Isaiah enough in Advent. We hear Isaiah 7, we hear Isaiah 9, wonderful counselor. This uh, woman will have a child and his name will be Emmanuel. We hear those and we sing Messiah. But actually, Handel's Messiah does have this part that we're singing or we're working from today. This is a Christmas text. A lot of Isaiah is a Christmas text because it's a promise of what happens and what comes in the future. And so we're going to open to Isaiah 40. And this is a really interesting passage, and it's quoted a lot in the New Testament. It's quoted by John the Baptist. We read it this morning at the very beginning of Mark. This is the good news, and here's what John the Baptist was saying and this comes from this passage in Isaiah. One of the other interesting things that I tried to do with this series was we always talk about Jesus during Christmas, which that's good. We want to talk about Jesus. But this is actually a series about God through Jesus. And we can't start with Jesus until we start with understanding who God is and the character of God and why in the world would he even want to send his son to do those things, to dwell among us. But let's read Isaiah 40 and see what it has to say to us. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. 
and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. But the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. This is the power of our God. This is the mighty works and the salvation of our God. Now, disasters make people numb, afraid, and hopeless. We woke up this morning to news of 14 people that had died in Tennessee overnight from tornadoes. 14 people who went to bed feeling safe and comfortable and secure. Families who were together that hadn't been ripped apart. And just like that, a disaster has turned them into homeless and hopeless and afraid people. Disasters undermine faith in God and in traditions that once presented the world as orderly and secure. In the beginning of the 6th century B.C., Babylon invaded Judah. We know this. We've heard this before. That's what Isaiah is written of. A time of, in the first part, one through, chapters 1 through 39, this is going to happen to you if you do not turn, if you do not turn, if you do not turn. And it happens in the 6th century. Babylon invades Judah, destroys most of Jerusalem, interrupts their economy, and deported all of their citizens to Babylon. The Israelites are living in exile. They're not at home. And Babylon occupied that land for at least 50 years. Generations grew up away from their home. Generations of families were split because Babylon came and destroyed them. Now, there are many kinds of hurt and suffering Israel and Babylon exile certainly qualified as that. Now, at the time that Isaiah 40 was written, this was a sermon to the people in exile. Isaiah 40 opens the second part of Isaiah, sometimes called Second Isaiah. And in this part, in chapters 40 through 55, they are in exile. So this is the prophet Isaiah reading and declaring to God the good to his people, the good word from God, while they are in Babylonian exile. And so the exile had already been a couple generations old at this point. And she was so far from her home country of Palestine and radically separated from the holy places of Jerusalem. Families had been broken up, culture shattered, religious practices confused. Now, all the evidence indicates that economically and politically, Israel fared quite well in exile. 
They were not mistreated by imprisonment or tortured or even um, consistently discriminated against. But they were homeless. They did long to go home. They did long to be away from the place that they had been carried to, to a new place. They longed for their holiest of holies. They longed to be in the presence of God once again. But I think there's a deeper dimension to their exile than just homesickness. If Isaiah 40 was just about homesickness, I don't think it would matter very much. I don't think this is a story about nostalgia. I don't think this is a story about, oh, you guys are feeling pretty bad that you're not at your home. Oh, that's sad. What can I do to help you with that? They were in exile because of covenantal disobedience. They made a choice as a nation to refuse repentance and spurn righteousness. The prophets had given them hundreds of years of warnings that they had persistently broken God's covenant. God said, this is what you need to do, and they refused to do it time and time again. And the threat of exile had hung over their heads for long decades before it became a reality. There was no confusion about why they were in Babylon. Some of my atheist friends say to me, well, how could you worship a God who sends people to hell? If God is so good, how can he send people to hell? And it's like, he doesn't, God doesn't send people to hell. They send themselves. God wants redemption for his people. God wants them to do the things that he's called them to do to live in righteousness and humility. God didn't send Babylon. Israel called Babylon to them because they were out of God's covenant. And in the great justice of God's love and his mercy and his care for people, that has to be rectified. You can't just say, I'm going to live outside of God's dwelling. I'm going to live outside of the place that God has called me to. That was a choice that you have made to go down that road. Babylon came because you called it to yourself. But make no mistake, this is the judgment of God on the Israelites. So they were not only feeling uprooted from their land, but uprooted from their God. They were gone from that place of presence where God was there and could comfort them and could meet them and they could meet God in those places. And however far they decided they wanted to be from him, however many times that they decided they wanted to walk away, God was willing and ready to meet. There was not the feeling of being a stranger outwardly, but a sense of being a stranger inwardly, in their souls, their hearts. They experienced exile deeply and pervasively, both on the outside and on the inside. And so at the outset, we don't have much in common with the Israelites. We are not sitting here in church today because we're exiles. We're not denied access to our holy places. Our families have not been split up. Our culture has not been destroyed. Our, enemy, our, our identities are still rooted in our lives. And we might not be in the same town in which we were born and raised, but we are at least in the same country and speak the same language we learned from our parents. 
But let's look at it from a different angle. Our experience is nearly identical to Israel's. If we could pin down how we feel today, this morning, in this place, it would be not so much that God has left us alone, but that we have wandered off and left God. And we feel both lonely and guilty for those things. We've gotten far from home, and there is a vast distance between us and our experience of God's presence. And don't misinterpret that. Because God is always present. He's always there. He sends the Spirit, and we know the presence of God by the presence of the Spirit. But it's us who have drifted, have wandered, who have wandered aimlessly. And some of this is cultural, some circumstantial, some due to historical changes in the world. But there is some of it in all of us that is hauntingly inward. We are restless and anxious and homesick because we are away from God and away from his presence. Eugene Peterson writes, a sick person needs comfort because of being separated from health and vitality in his or her own body. The bereaved needs comfort because of being psychologically separated from a spouse or a child or a friend. The exile needs comfort because of separation from country and culture. And all of us need comfort because we are separated from our origins in God and our future in Christ. How does God comfort this person who is me and who is you? How does he close the gap that our sin has created? Israel was in exile as a consequence of breaking God's covenant with them, and they had been well warned. But nothing would ring true if that basic history was obscured or denied. But, and this is the important thing that I believe, that past, Israel's past, our past, was neither condemned nor condoned. It was accepted. It may not have been approved, but it was accepted. God did not say to them and does not say to us today, quit your whining and your sniveling. You only got what was coming to you. You have no reason to be mournful. You have no reason to grieve. You were warned and you didn't listen to the warning and now you're paying for it. Act like a mature person and get on with your life. That response, which he's well in his rights to say, it would have been true to the facts, right? But it wouldn't be the gospel. It wouldn't have been the good news for anybody. That would have meant that they were still treated as persons who had failed and who couldn't walk a straight, righteous line. That would have meant the future would continue to be very much like the past because they as a people could never maintain a national righteousness that would not have been speaking tenderly, as Isaiah says. And comfort always begins by speaking tenderly. The people's unfaithfulness was not overlooked or whitewashed, but the people themselves were completely accepted. They were received by God as a forgiven people. They were treated sympathetically as a judged people. Isaiah's words comfort only exiles who know their exiles. Isaiah's words come to people who know that they're trapped in a place that is not their home. 
Isaiah's words only can ring true to us if we know that we are so far from God, that we have been practicing and practicing and practicing and believing, and yet we wake up every morning feeling like it's all been thrown away. And so we can learn from this. We can learn from what Isaiah words mean for our lives. We can resist the prideful, superior, I told you so, when it comes to assisting someone who is suffering. Someone who's let their guard down. Someone who has wandered away from righteousness. Someone who you told time and time and time again, if you do this, you are going to suffer. Why are you not listening? You're making mistakes in your life if you continue to believe these things and do these things and participate in those activities. And then they come to us broken, grieving, saddened. And we throw up our hands and we say, I told you so. I told you this would happen. I was right all along. I wish there was something I could do to help you. Why is it so difficult to accept with grace and forgiveness the past that has produced suffering? We have a hard time realizing that the sufferer has already received not only what is due, but double what is due. And because we have a difficulty treating others in this new way, we have a hard time accepting God's treatment of us in this new way. That I look at you as a broken person coming to me asking for forgiveness. I'm sorry that I treated you this way. I'm sorry that I walked down that path. I'm sorry I threw away every chance and opportunity that I had. And I look at you and I think, I cannot believe you're worthy of forgiveness because when I look at my Savior and my God, I can't believe that I'm worthy of forgiveness. And it's about time that we speak tenderly to one another in this regard that we don't condemn, we don't condone, but we accept what has happened. Because we know that we're in exile. We know that these words will only help people who are suffering and know that they're suffering. We suffer when we have been separated from what is vital to our, holy, our wholeness. That's the word shalom, by the way. Wholeness, completeness. Our bodies, our homes, our loved ones, our God, all these separations, though different in seriousness and ultimacy, they all feel the same. And they all have some personal guilt in them, for we all have some responsibility in that separation. That guilt needs to be acknowledged, forgiven, and accepted. And if we deny it in either ourselves or others, we will never find out anything worthwhile about our past that we can give us that can give us strength and cover, cover and strength for the present and the future. And worse, we will not recognize God's first words. Note this, by the way, God's first words that bring us comfort. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem that her warfare is ended. Now, one distinction does remain. One distinction for us to think through the distinction between those who rejoice at the word of God's coming 
and those who see God's rule as a threat to their own power and position. Now, when the word comes to us about God's coming reign, lives secured by position and power and privilege will feel threatened. They'll tremble at the sound of God coming, and privilege will fall away, and position will fall away. But those who have suffered under another's death-dealing rule, they will learn to rejoice at the sound of God coming soon. But then there's this. It says in verse 3, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. You know, when we're left to our own devices, one of our most commonest things that we do in comforting the suffering is to talk about the future, even though we know nothing about it. I'm so sorry you're going through that. It will get better. I'm so sorry you're suffering. I'm so sorry you lost a loved one. I'm so sorry that you've had to go through that. It will get better. But how do we know that? How can we stand there and predict the future in someone's life? If they continue to make the same mistakes over and over again, it's not going to get better. We say, don't feel so bad. It'll be better by and by. God's word about the future is quite different. It is not delayed. It is the present tense. God says, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Prepare is present tense. It is not future tense. When Isaiah is repeating God's words to the people of Israel, he's saying, don't build castles in the sky. Don't construct an elaborate fantasy life about God's future for you. In the wilderness, prepare. Right here. Right now, where you feel comfortless, where you feel your suffering, where you feel like you are in exile, prepare now. Don't wait for a new thing to happen. Don't wait for the skies to open up and give you a sign. God is telling us, while you are in the wilderness, I am here with you, present tense. Do it. Make a way for me. Open your life to me. Open your heart to me. This is not something that we're going to wait for along the road. In the wilderness, prepare. Here where it's going the roughest. Here in Babylon. Here in exile. Right here in Fenton. Comfort is not stored up in some remote future. It's not some thing that God has promised. It's not Extra comfort focuses on the present. In this dry, colorless, featureless Babylonian desert that has seeped into the inner life of the sufferer, this is where the highway to the Lord is meant to be built. In the wilderness, among the barrenness of our life, along the suffering 
of our life. We don't wait and get better. We don't do things better. We don't find a new way to do them better. God says, build the road to me next to those things. And it'll be so easy because the valleys will rise up and the mountains will come down and it will be a smooth ride to meet your Savior. He comes and changes things drastically. Don't try to escape on some magic carpet ride. Valleys are no longer dark, treacherous hideouts for bandits and bears. Mountains are no longer perilous, made miserable by icy winds and rocky paths. The valleys will be filled in and the mountains will be leveled. <laughs> and what about our people? God promises the same thing for our people, doesn't he? That the low will come high and the high will come low. And this is what it looks like in God's kingdom, that we're all rising to the same level. Not because of something inherent in us, but because God has promised, if you make the way, I will be there. If you meet me in those desert places, I will be there. What has been a threat to our comfort and very existence will become a level highway of our God. And it is here in verse 5 that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, the traditional Hebrew translation of the glory of the Lord, you're going to love this. The presence of the Lord shall appear. The presence of God will appear and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God is saying this is what comfort is about. You want to be comforted? Make a way to me and you'll be in my presence. Walk the road with me, you'll be in my presence. This is how he comforts, by becoming present, by drawing near to his children. And we know this, our family knows this really well, because how do we comfort a crying baby? We draw near. We pick her up and we hold her. And just by the baby smelling her mother's scent, she's comforted. And this is not a baby that needs to do something in the future, that needs to build some sort of bridge, that needs to escape this place. This is not a mother who says, okay, I hear you crying. In the future, when you've calmed yourself down, I will draw near to you and comfort you. Just like a mother to her baby, God sees children that are suffering and they need help, they need consoling in their wilderness places. And he says, let me show you who I am. Let me show you my presence. Friends, this is so important. Comfort is not something extra like a soft pillow to moderate the discomfort of a lumpy mattress. 
It is God's word now personally in our lives, a strong, challenging, energetic word that builds new strength and energy in you and in us and our community and our churches and our families. It's here now to build. That's what God's comfort does. Let Isaiah's words reshape your imaginations into the present tense. Hear this word of God and be comforted. Not in a future of fancy, not in nostalgic longings for the past, but right now in your home, in your workplace, in your family, in your heart. Build the Lord's highway here. All conditions have been met. Your warfare has ended. Your iniquities have been pardoned. And here's the thing about this. Here's the thing about comfort. Now that you have been spoken to tenderly, you can speak tenderly. Because that's what the good news is. That's what the good news, remember Mark starts with that. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. And this is good news from Isaiah as well. It's so odd that the word comfort would be the first word that God speaks to his people in exile. And it's even stranger still that God would want to come and comfort us because this is not what kings do. This is not what rulers do. They don't go out and comfort their people. You do that on your own. This God is different. This God is personable. He's special because he hears about suffering and even though you've put yourself into this position, your warfare has ended. And that's good news. Your tenderness will be able to tell others what God has told you, that their warfare has ended. This is what happens when God comes to his people. Christ was born for this reason. Christ comes into our wilderness. Christ comes into those 400 years from the last prophet to the time of John the Baptist. God comes into that moment and says, this is why Christ has come to dwell among us. Do you want my presence? Do you want me to draw close to you? Here is my son. I can't get any closer than that. This is why Christ has come to dwell among us. This is why Christ has come down to speak into our lives and say, your warfare is ended. Your sins are gone. You don't have to fight anymore. Here I am. I am here to comfort you. That's why Advent is about where we dwell. It's about why we come into this moment longing to dwell in the presence of God and the presence of Christ, to, to say, reveal your glory to me, God. We have wandered so far. I don't know what we've become, but send me something that I can look at, that I can know. We can rise up from all of this This is why Christ was born.